from Stanford University and KZSU. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm not going to vote for anyone who wants to start sticking babies up some old farts. Political candidates are groomed and rehearsed. Everything they do on the campaign trail is according to a precise script created by a host of advisors, spin doctors, strategists, and even stylists. Yet, despite all of this protection, they still screw up. They call an Indian-American macaca on camera, or are pictured wearing a soldier's helmet, riding in a tank looking like a child playing dress-up. With these foibles, imagine what the ground troops have to go through. The people going door-to-door, manning the phones, handing out flyers. They meet people they agree with, more people they disagree with, and frankly, some people that scare the bejesus out of them. In 2006, Stanford seniors Gabe Winant and Kalani Leifer met one such person when they were canvassing for Jim Webb's senatorial campaign in Virginia. They were given a list of potential voters to visit, but they decided to take their chances without it. That was a mistake. So we're going around, and we have this, I don't know if any of you have canvassed before, but you have a list of, of homes, and there's uh, voters and how they voted in the past. And, and what they are, because it was pretty close to the election, is they're likely voters, because the campaign really just wants you to, they're done persuading, and they just want you to make sure that their likely voters are now going to vote. So Kalani says to me, you yeah, know, this is undemocratic. What we should really be doing is trying to convince everybody to participate in the democratic process. And I said, well, you know, there's a reason that, that they give us the list that they give us. <laughs> but, you know, he, he insisted. So so we're going, we're knocking on doors. We've probably knocked on 100 doors. Um, but so anyways, we come to this door who's not on our list. This is the very first door not on the list after <laughs> I cave. And it's also the last door um, not on our list that we do. Um, and so what happens is we knock on the door and we wait a little while. And then this woman comes out. And she's kind of Liza Minnelli in Arrested <laughs> Development. You know, she's maybe mid-60s, very pale, uh, wearing like a long velvet robe. Yeah, it was sort of a bathrobe or, or a night robe. It was purple, I think, and velvet. And she comes out, and it's immediately clear that something is off. She's, she's in a daze or on something. Com- it's, she's completely drugged out. And Kalani reaches forward to shake her hand. <laughs> And that was the biggest mistake I ever made. So I reach out to shake her hand, and for the remainder of the story, my hand is in her death grip. <laughs> so we say, you know, the usual spiel. Hi, you know, we're volunteers for Jim Webb for U.S. Senate. We're wondering if you're planning to vote uh, this coming Tuesday, etc. And she looks at us, and she, she sort of looks around, <laughs> looks up, and looks down, and looks forward, and says in this kind of spacey, not-quite-there voice, Yeah, we're just, uh... We're just not Jim Webb's guy. And you can tell what she's trying to say is Jim Webb's not our guy, right? But she's got the singulars and plurals all messed up and they don't agree. And so that's when we know, like, things are – and it's hard to translate over audio or or however how intensely scared we were, Uh, especially me because I have my hand in her kind of cold, sweaty grip. Very, very early in the conversation, she made it absolutely clear to us that she was not, in fact, Jim Webb's guy. Jim Webb. And neither was her husband, and together they weren't his guy. But it kind of was like a – it just fell apart from We persisted in trying to to convince her. So we said, you know, we think, you know, we really believe in this candidate. He, you know, he's really good on the war, et cetera, et cetera. We made – you know, we go through all the talking points. And everything we said, she would just say – we're not Jim Webb's guy. We're just we're just not Jim Webb's guy. And then it becomes clear. I, well, to anyone saying it would have become clear that we wanted out of the situation. But she she actually wanted us to stick around, and, and she started saying things like, "Who wants cookies? <laughs> Who wants hugs?" <laughs> and it wasn't clear to us if she, if she meant Hershey's hugs and Hershey's oh, kisses. I, I, it was clear to me. I thought I was pretty sure that she meant physical hugs <laughs> because she was obviously first inviting us into the apartment for cookies, mm-hmm. which we respectfully declined. 
I don't, I don't, I'm not scared that easily, um, but I was terrified. And so we're trying to start, like, we're trying to back away a little bit, but my hand is still in her death grip. And we're trying to, like, sort of back down the stairs. And then she, she, she's sane enough to know that if she wants to stick around, she has to perpetuate the conversation about Jim Webb. So she kind of lets on that maybe... Is that, so you rip your hand out of her, you rip it away. Yeah. And then, but then she wants to keep talking. And she kind of lets on that maybe she would be open to voting for him. To being his guy. And so we're, <laughs> we're naive enough to sort of jump right back into it. And this is after, by the way, the apartment was uh, kind of an outdoor... The entrance to, to it was outdoors, but on the third story. And so after Kalani rips away his hand, and we say thank you, goodbye, and so, start to go down the stairs to get away. And she follows us out and, and sort of, <laughs> as Kalani stairs. said, intimates that she might, in fact, be willing to consider discussing being Jim Webb's guy. So we go through the, we go through the discussion again, and she just sort of looks at us again and says, "Yeah, yeah, we're just we're just not Jim Webb's guy. <laughs> he wants hugs." <laughs> and at that point, we turn and run, <laughs> literally and- sprinted away. From KZSU Stanford, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm your host, Micah Craddy. Today on the show, campaigning. How people get other people to vote for them or their candidate and the missteps that happen along the way. Today's show is in three parts. First, Alyssa Morales and Wesley Lim tell the story of the jingles that help put people in office and keep others out of office. Second, Monica Udine, Jeremy Newman, and Omar Sadat answer the question you've always wondered, why is there so much negative campaigning? And last, Melissa Levitt tells the story of what happens when you go door-to-door to campaign and the people that answer either don't vote or won't vote for her candidate. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. Too much regret, too much time wasting, accumulating. I am so tired of taking and taking, so I'm throwing it down, throwing it down. Look, ma, no hands and got my feet on the ground. Jingles have been used to sell products for as long as there were commercials, but they were used to sell candidates even before that. In our first story of the show, Alyssa Morales and Wesley Lim trace the history of campaign songs from the 19th century to Billy Ray Cyrus. This jangly little piece of music isn't just any country song. It's the song that won an election. Or rather, was used by the winner of an election. The farmers rise up every morning and fight We pay the taxes, we pay the bills, so they better pay attention up on Capitol Hill, is later sung in this piece aptly titled, We the People. It's an everyman type song, jammed with catchphrases like, the buck stops here, and a list of blue collar jobs that the song says run this country. But toe tapping qualities aside, there's another reason why this song is important. This song was used by the Bush for President campaign during the 2000 election. Gaggingly patriotic, it was written by Billy Ray Cyrus. Yes, the same Billy Ray Cyrus of Achy Breaky Heart fame. Bush's campaign was dogged by missteps in an attempt to find a campaign song. Artists complained about their music being used, 
and at one event, they accidentally played the song Cats in the Cradle, a song about a son making the same mistakes as his father. The Bush staff had compiled a CD of potential songs, but as time passed, the staff would mark a black X next to those they couldn't play. Their choices became few, and We the People was one that was not recalled. Campaign blunders aren't new. President Taft once used a song called Get on the Raft with Taft. The irony is often pointed out that because Taft was a large individual, well over 300 pounds, any raft with Taft in it could not have supported too many other men. Mistakes aside, campaign songs have been used for a long time to much success. While today they are an unrecognized component of the political campaign machine, they are a carefully calculated part of a politician's image, and have been since the days of Jefferson. As long as there have been elections, there have been songs to sing the praises of the candidates. The first election for which there are actual campaign songs is thought to be the 1800 race between Thomas Jefferson and the incumbent John Adams. The gloomy night before us flies, the reign of terror now is o'er. No gags, inquisitors, and spies, the herds of harpies are no more. Rejoice. This is a modern rendition of the song that Jefferson used when he and Adams campaigned for the presidency. The first time the two campaigned against one another, Jefferson won the popular vote, but Adams won the Electoral College by three. Four years later, Jefferson was able to spread the word on his character through these songs, and he prevailed, securing himself the win both with the people and in the Electoral College. While some on rights and some on wrongs prefer their own reflections, the people's rights demand our song, the right of free elections. At this time in history, literacy could not be guaranteed, and there is no popular cheap method of mass communication, other than word of mouth. So in order to woo the nation, candidates would inform their constituents with song. The popular method was to use songs whose melodies the masses were already familiar with. Just change the words to praise the candidates. Drinking songs, dancing jigs, and ballads were often the base of campaign songs for the first hundred years of elections. That made the songs easy to remember, and connected the candidates to the voters. Initially, campaign songs were about character. Many of these candidates were professionals who had overcome social hardships to get to where they were. Someone like Andrew Jackson, for instance, came from the mountain wilderness and had to work hard for his education. Yet his songs, like those of his peers, spoke nothing of this side of the candidate. Instead, they focused only on character and citizenship. There are three ways that a candidate displays his character for the public. First was to show the candidate as an upstanding military champion. Rum-a-dum-dum, vote for Taylor. Rum-a-dum-dum, son of freedom. Rum-a-dum-dum, vote for Taylor. He's the boy. This catchy little tune belongs to Zachary Taylor. 
It's an example of parading a military victory in a triumphant campaign zone. He met him on the Rio Grande, played them Yankee Doodle Dandy. When brave Taylor crossed the line, he made them snort like a steam engine. This is one of the most common themes in early campaign music because these songs said that I won battles, I am successful. Let me remind you of the patriotic moment when I helped America win. The lyrics showcased that this was the type of person who had a winning character and would bring that to the office of the president. And for those who didn't fight in wars, there's the fire and brimstone method. John Quincy Adams is what's upcoming, the sixth president of the United States. This is the type of song that explains what you'll be getting if you don't elect this person. Fire's coming, swords are coming, pistols, guns, and knives are coming, diamonds coming, diamonds coming, if John Quincy not be coming. Plague and pestilences are coming, Satan's are coming, if John Quincy not be coming. Those are pretty strong accusations against Adam's opponent. It implies that he was really going to screw up this country. But we were lucky, as Adams was elected and kept the plague at bay. That brings us to the last type of campaign song, and the one most familiar to today's listeners, mudslinging campaigns. Rock-a-bye, baby. This is a song from the campaign of the 8th president, Martin Van Buren. Seems quaint enough, no? Listen to this part. When he has swung, he'll fall in a stew. And down will come Tyler and Tippecanoe. That's slander right there. Van Buren is liking his opponent, William Henry Harrison, to a drunkard. It's a base move on the part of a future president. You awake, you will discover Tip is a fake. But don't feel too bad for Harrison. The mudslinging wasn't one-sided, as one of Harrison's songs featured the line, Who moves at Satan's beck and nod, who heeds not man, who heeds not God, Van Buren. While those words did not win him the election the first go-round, Harrison would win four years later and become the president with the shortest known term in office, only 30 days long. Until the beginning of the last century, the military victory, fire and brimstone, and muckslinging were the three basic types of songs that were used. Some of the candidates would use a few of these ideas at once, but the effect was still the same. They stood to show that these candidates were good, patriotic citizens worthy of your vote. And they are effective. These themes can even be seen in the campaign commercials of today's candidates. The art of the campaign song changed in the early part of the last century as a new way to spread news became popular. Over, and election time is near. From east and west, from north to south, there's just one name in every mouth when a fellow... With the invention of radio, suddenly a 
The candidate's message could reach anyone in the country quickly. Did you notice the ukulele accompaniment to this song? The ukulele was a novel instrument that was appearing in popular music of this time. Campaign songs now began to go for the masses in a different manner. Rather than reusing a melody, they appealed to popular culture. We need a man to guide us, who'll always be beside us. A man who this song belongs to President Number 29, Warren G. Harding. It was written for Harding's campaign by Al Jolson. Jolson's name may sound familiar. He was a popular entertainer of the day, and was the voice of the first talkie, the jazz singer. The GOP Harding on to victory. We're here to make a fuss. Warren Harding, you're the man for us. From this time on, names like famous composer Irving Berlin and folk music hero Woody Guthrie entered the campaign music game. While songs had sounded mostly the same for the first century or so, during the 20th century they began to rapidly evolve, just as media itself was changing. So it's Harding, lead the GOP, Harding, on to victory. We're here to make a fuss. Warren Harding, you're the man for us. Warren Harding, you're the man for us. The themes of the songs were changing as well. Instead of saying what an upstanding citizen a candidate was, the song went for simple catchiness. Eisenhower's song, for example, repeated his slogan, I like Ike, over and over again. And Lyndon Johnson's song was based off his love for the musical Hello Dolly, called, appropriately, Hello Lyndon. Hello Lyndon, well, hello Lyndon, we'd be proud to have you back where you belong. The campaign song had evolved to become background music, a jingle, touting the popularity and personableness of the man. Jonah Berger, a doctoral student in marketing at the Stanford School of Business, explains it this way. If you're in a political campaign and you say, and then I'm, for, um, I'm for reducing your taxes, um, then that's a message that people can either believe or not. Um, and so when people are trying to be convinced of something, they tend to counter-argue. Um, so if you, you, know, you tell me that you want me to believe something, I'm going to have a little bit of reactance and not really want to go along with what you're saying, and I'm going to think of counter-arguments. Um, whereas if you play me a song or something like that, that kind of slips in a little more peripherally. Candidates now had TV and print news to campaign. They had televised debates, pamphlets, stump speeches, and commercials. The need for a song to spread the word about a candidate wasn't nearly as imperative as it had been for the first presidents. I heard a young man the last known song written specifically for a campaign was the ballad Why Not the Best for Jimmy Carter. Just to listen to what he had to say He spoke straight and simple By that I was impressed He said Once and for all Why not the best 
Due to his bad public image and unfortunate political climate, Carter would stay in office only one term. So the next president saw a new decade and a new approach to campaign songs. Made a lot of sense. He talked about the government and how it used to be for you and me. That's the way it ought to be right now. Once and for all, why not the best? When Reagan was running for re-election 20 years ago, his campaign said that he was a Bruce Springsteen fan and chose the patriotic anthem Born in the USA off of Springsteen's latest album to campaign. The only problem that arose was that neither he nor his campaign actually listened to the rest of the song. Born in the USA is actually about the mistreatment of returning Vietnam veterans in America. It's more of an anti-system song than pro-government. In other words, a different type of patriotic anthem than what Reagan would have liked or wanted. Reagan was going in the right direction. He was attempting to reach an audience through music. He understood that Springsteen appealed to a certain population, namely the working class, and that by playing Springsteen's music, he might reach them. Reagan's only failing in that logic was to first reach the working class through his policies before trying to state that he was one of them through music. Jonah Berger explained. They'll probably pick a song that goes after a particular demographic, but so it may have different effects on, on different groups. And so I think a good example of that um, is if you looked at some recent commercials, some marketers are really trying to appeal to kids, right? So you'll see there's an ad for bagel bites. It's like, yeah, stuff your face with bagel bites. Oh, yeah, the rad thing to do. Um, and as a sort of savvy consumer, you look at that and say, bagel bites aren't rad. You know, these people are trying to sell me bagel bites by, you know, taking on my language. So if there's that sort of disconnect, I think there might definitely be a backlash. Being the Teflon president that he was, Reagan won the 1984 election despite the musical faux pas. And he also set the precedent of using established songs, lyrics unaltered, to campaign. The shining example of this happened in 1992. The Clinton campaign was about defying the traditional whistle-stop campaign tour. He appeared on MTV and late-night talk shows. Clinton made himself accessible to popular culture, and in doing so, became popular culture himself. As his campaign song, Clinton shows the 1974 Fleetwood Mac classic, Don't Stop.
With the chorus of Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, it will soon be here. It echoed his platform of looking towards the future, the millennium. And as icing to the cake, the easy listening song appealed to the baby boomers, embracing them in the campaign as much as Clinton was embracing the MTV generation. Jonah Berger. One way, definitely, um, that people talk about memory to get people to remember things is we all know, you know, songs we like. Um, and so, one, every time you hear that song on the radio, you're going to be cued to think of the new song. So if it's a popular song now, you know, if it's um, Yankee Doodle Dandy or whatever, and, and I, it's on the radio, but if I hear someone saying that, I'm going to think of the politician who associated themselves with it. That is the appeal of campaign songs now. They're targeting people's emotions and memories. Commercials and magazine interviews will tell you what a candidate is like. Music is how they get you to remember who they are. So that leads us to the here and now. The Democratic frontrunner, Carrie, has often used a Bruce Springsteen song at events. Carrie is mirroring Reagan's 1984 attempt with music by playing a song from the Born in the USA album. But instead of playing the title track, he's using No Surrender. It's a nice tune about being strong and resilient, and vaguely hints at Carrie's military past, with the refrain of, like soldiers in winter's nights with vows to defend, no retreat baby, no surrender. But so as not to alienate the generation who might not know Bruce Springsteen as the boss, Carrie's campaign has also played Tom Petty and U2's A Beautiful Day. The modern trend in campaign songs is to not have a campaign song, rather to have a few. This summer, Bush is playing selections from good old boy Toby Keith, along with Eye of the Tiger of Rocky Music fame. The songs stand to help bridge the gap between the candidate and the people, providing something familiar for the people to connect with. The image of a candidate is tightly calculated. Last year, early in campaigning, a flag pin fell off of Kerry's lapel. But without missing a beat, his campaign manager was there, fishing an identical pin out of a bag full of them. And during the 2000 election, Bush's communication director, Karen Hughes, could be seen mouthing the words to Bush's speech as he delivered them, in a creepy sort of ventriloquist act. There are now multiple mediums through which information can be transmitted. Modern-day candidates have commercials, web ads, and even internet blogs. And the image of the candidate is controlled through all those mediums. Today, music is used in a very subtle manner in campaigns. Most people are totally unaware of these songs' existence, and unaware of how they are affected by them. The use of campaign songs has changed as media in America has changed. The music has moved from being jingles with recognizable tunes to carefully chosen songs that express a position or a demographic that the candidate wants to reach. The change in these songs can also be read as a sign of the change in how candidates want to be understood. For the first hundred years or so, candidates wanted to be seen as patriotic citizens, saviors of the young country, and protectors of democracy. Today, that is stated in a much less blatant manner, and their music speaks of being an average, everyday American citizen, just like you or me. And while the use is subtle today, it is by no means less effective than when Jefferson first used his song.
Alyssa Morales and Wesley Lim are recent Stanford graduates. In every election cycle, people bemoan the mudslinging in the political campaigns. With all this opposition to the idea, why do candidates continue to do it year after year? In our second story, Monica Udin, Jeremy Newman, and Omar Sadat find the answer. All that negative campaigning just might work, and just might be good for our democracy. Bush, and I approve this message. I'm John Kerry, and I approve this message. Flip-flopper, incompetent, liberal. Enough already. Haven't we had all the politics we could ever want? In fact, I've had enough name-calling, finger-pointing, and mudslinging to last me a lifetime. How has this election made you feel about negative politics? Negative campaigns are bad. Why? Because because the, the true issues at hand get pushed aside. No, when I see negative campaign, it's like, you know, don't vote for him, he's bad for children. I'm like, that's really mean, because people have said that about me before. Okay, well, I hate negative ads, because I feel like you should seriously just promote your own whatever you're advertising instead of bashing other. Like, I really hate them. People are tired of all the negativity, and I am too. Why does it have to be like this, anyway? Why do politicians have to attack each other all the time? On my TV? It makes me wonder, whatever happened to the time when people still respected the president, and when attack ads didn't saturate my television every election year? Whatever happened to the time when politics was honorable, when politicians had integrity, and relevant political discussion fueled our democracy? I went on a mission to find out, and what I discovered might surprise you. It was difficult to decide how far back I should go in my search for the golden age of politics. I decided to play it safe. I started as far back as I could, with two of our nation's founding fathers in the first ever contested presidential race. I knew I'd find a clean campaign full of ideas, not attacks. In 1796, the Federalist John Adams was running against the Republican Thomas Jefferson. It was two of the greatest American patriots in history, in a good, honest race against each other. Their signatures are on the Declaration of Independence. These men must have reeked integrity. The Federalists called Jefferson an atheist, anarchist, demagogue, coward, trickster, and a Francomaniac. But the Republicans weren't left behind. They called Adams an avowed friend of monarchy who wanted to make his sons lords of this country. In 1800, Jefferson and Adams went at it again, and this time the attacks got even worse. A Federalist newspaper warned that if Jefferson won, people would see their dwellings in flames, hoary hairs bathed in blood, female chastity violated, and children riding on the pike and halberd. And in return... The Republicans spread a rumor that John Adams planned to marry his children to King George's children to reunite the United States and Britain. I was shocked. Just years after the birth of our democracy, this is what politics was like? There were plenty of accusations, but where was the actual discussion of the issues? The attacks on the candidates in 1800 were so bad 
that John Adams' wife Abigail thought that the abuse and scandal was enough to ruin and corrupt the minds and morals of the best people in the world. And this was with two of our founding fathers running against each other. Could I hope for anything better as time went on? Apparently not. When Andrew Jackson ran for president in 1828 against John Quincy Adams, Adams' supporters called Jackson's mother a prostitute, accusing her of having several illegitimate children with a mulatto man. Jackson was also accused of adultery, bigamy, theft, murder, and cockfighting. Meanwhile, John Quincy Adams was accused of procuring young American virgins for the Russian Tsar. And in the 1884 presidential election, Grover Cleveland's sex life was the hot issue. As a young man, Cleveland had had a relationship with a female employee in his law office. She wound up pregnant, and although Cleveland supported his former mistress and bastard son financially, his opponent James Blaine publicly attacked Cleveland's morality. Blaine's supporters chanted, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? Which takes us to the end of the 19th century and to the end of my political idealism. I guess political attacks were as alive in the 1800s as they are today. In the 19th century, American politics was just as negative as it is today, if not more so. Stanford Communications and Political Science professor Shanto Iyengar. But because the audience for that kind of rhetoric was so narrow, the people who were really active in the campaign, they didn't really have much impact. Television, of course, has changed everything, and now the entire public is receiving these messages. And that's why it seems to have this kind of off-putting effect. But I don't understand. If the audience for attack ads is becoming more broad because of television, how is it that we don't hear the same kinds of attacks? We know Bush called Kerry a flip-flopper, sure, but that's not quite the same thing as calling his mother a whore. We don't hear the same types of attacks today as we did then, because negative campaigning has evolved since the 1800s, along with everything else. The tone of negative campaigns has changed since the advent of the television ad in the 1950s. Most TV attack ads present a specific argument about why a candidate's policies would be bad for the country or why he's unfit to lead. Considering our history, you'd think that would be a refreshing change. But what about my search for the golden age of political discourse? Where can we find a time when negative ads did more than just make wild accusations? When they actually discussed the issues and educated the voters? Surprisingly, that time is now. Believe it or not, but the vast majority of modern negative ads have been issue-oriented. I know what you're thinking. This goes against all of our intuitions about the evils of negative campaigning. And yet, according to University of Florida professor Linda Lee Cade, 74% of ads in the television era have focused on issues. That's actually a greater percentage than positive ads, of which 61% focus on issues. And negative ads are more than twice as likely as positive ads to use logical appeals. But what do these numbers really mean? Let's take a look at a couple of examples of early television ads from 1952. Eisenhower answers America. Food prices, clothing prices, income taxes, won't they ever go down? 
Not with an $85 billion budget eating away on your grocery bill, your clothing, your food, your income. Yet the Democrats say, you never had it so good. That negative ad discussed an important issue and gave a logical argument against the Democrats' budget. Compare that to this positive ad run by Eisenhower's opponent, Adlai Stevenson. Vote Stevenson, vote Stevenson, a man you can believe in, son. From Illinois, whence Lincoln came, his leadership has won him fame. A soldier man is always bound to think in terms of battleground. But Stevenson, civilian son, will lead us till the peace is won. In this case, the negative ad advanced discussion of the issues, while the positive ad didn't really say anything. It turns out, in the TV age, negative advertisements often inform the public about key issues and offer contrasting viewpoints to help them decide upon a candidate. That's just what happened in the 1984 campaign, which pitted Walter Mondale against incumbent Ronald Reagan. Reagan's policies had led to economic expansion, but also to record deficits. The future of the economy hung in the balance. Reagan attacked Mondale's economic policy in this ad. Reaganomics. You cut deficits through growth and less government spending. Mondaleomics, you raise taxes. With Reaganomics, you create incentives that move us all forward. With Mondaleomics, you raise taxes. It may have been blunt, but the ad was also true. Mondale did pledge to raise taxes as a centerpiece of his campaign. He shot back with this ad, visually comparing Reagan's economic policy to a roller coaster ride. 1982. Reaganomics plummets our economy into the deepest recession in 50 years. Two years later, Ronald Reagan says the economy is moving up again. Of course it is. Up on a mountain of federal debt. A record federal deficit that will drive interest rates up, slow the economy down, and then... If you're thinking of voting for Ronald Reagan in 1984, just think of what will happen in 1985. These negative ads informed the public in a way positive ads could not. Because of the negative ads, voters knew not only the benefits of each candidate's economic policy, but also the pitfalls. America made its choice. We elected Reagan in a landslide, but those negative ads may have helped us make a more informed decision. John Kerry called the 2004 campaign the most negative in history, though if he knew what I know now, he might have had to eat his words. But even if it were true, even if this campaign was the most negative, would that be a bad thing? Let's take a look at a positive ad and then a negative ad from Kerry's own campaign, and you can judge which is more substantive. He's a husband and father, a hunter, hockey player, tough prosecutor, advocate for kids, a man of faith, a combat veteran who earned three Purple Hearts, risking his life to save others. 19 years, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, praised by former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, under Presidents Reagan and Clinton. Stronger at home, respected in the world. John Kerry for president. Now that made you feel good, but does it make you smarter? 
Compare that to this negative ad, run by the Kerry campaign, which actually informs voters about the state of the economy. Under George Bush and right-wing Republicans, we've lost 2.7 million manufacturing jobs, the worst jobs record since Herbert Hoover. New jobs pay $9,000 less. Healthcare costs skyrocket. Higher deductibles and co-pays. Gas prices soar. George Bush and right-wing Republicans give tax breaks for companies that export jobs. Handouts to Halliburton and Enron. But they put the squeeze on the middle class. It's time for a new direction. Now, that's not to say that all negative ads are issues-oriented or logical. And it's true that not all positive ads are as fluffy as this one. Still, on the whole, it seems negative ads in the TV era have tended to be more informative. But you might say, so what? So what if negative advertisements had more information than we originally thought? That doesn't make them any less annoying. And besides, what are they doing for us now? Well, even today, negative ads continue to play the important role of watchdog, letting the public know about a candidate's shortcomings or scandals. Political scientist Robert Lowy said recently, In the recent U.S. Senate race in Colorado, I would have never have learned that one of the candidates tried to put a medical incinerator in a minority neighborhood if it had not been for a good negative ad. Because of increased scrutiny on negative ad campaigns, in the TV age, negative ads are often forced to higher standards of factual accuracy than positive ads, and they're more likely to be remembered by potential voters. In an August 18, 2004 segment of National Public Radio's Day Today, University of Wisconsin professor Ken Goldstein further discusses the merits of negative campaigns. My research and the research of, of, of other scholars has shown that negative ads are actually factually more accurate than positive ads. Also, the negative ads are more likely to talk about policy. And my research has shown that voters are not demobilized by negative ads, but are mobilized by negative ads. It turns out that new studies are showing a link between negative ads and higher voter turnout. An analysis by political scientists Stephen Finkel and John Gere shows that since 1960, turnout has intended to increase in presidential elections when a greater percent of campaign ads were negative. And according to a study at the University of California, Irvine, people who didn't vote in the 1988 election were more likely to vote in the next election if they remembered seeing negative ads than if they didn't. But how can that be? We always hear about how attack ads are angering the public and driving them away from the polls. How can negative ads actually increase turnout? According to political scientist Paul Martin, Negative ads tend to discuss problems in America, and when people see problems with the country, it inspires a sense of civic duty, which makes them more likely to participate in politics. So, sick at the state of politics today, I abandoned it all and started off on a mission to find a time where I wouldn't have to listen to silly attacks and mudslinging. But even the furthest back I could go, I couldn't escape them negative ads were absolutely everywhere. And then it turned out that that wasn't such a bad thing. The television age brought negative campaigning to a huge new audience, and ironically, negative ads began to become less about flat-out insulting the other candidate and more about showing the voters what the candidate was doing wrong. And despite the fact that it seems like everyone claims to be sick of all the negativity, the fact is that in the TV era, 
Studies show a link between the rate of negative advertising and increased voter turnout. And the more memorable they are, the more people seem to think about them and talk about them afterward. In my mission to find the day when democracy seemed to function in a better way, what more could I have asked for? Monica Udin, Jeremy Newman, and Omar Sadat are recent Stanford graduates. In our last story of the show, Melissa Levitt tells her story of going door-to-door in the swing state of Nevada to try and get voters to cast their ballots for John Kerry in the 2004 presidential election. Along the way, she learns a little about how we get people to vote and about the shady side of Reno hotels. So, you know, we basically were just we're just driving down this, you know, strip in quotations, as it were. You know, we turn in the hotel, we park in the parking lot. And basically, like, you know, finding the hotel was just the first part of the challenge. Now we actually had to figure out how to get to the front door of it because it was so run down. Like the parking lot was just completely dark. I was actually kind of afraid walking from the car to the to the to the hotel that some, you know, kind of attacker was going to to pop out out of nowhere and whisk me away to some unimaginable fate. I'm sort of like tripping over speed bumps. I don't know where I am. My boyfriend is completely preoccupied looking for his cell phones. We can call our contact in the group. We're all trying to sort of like find the front doors. Um, But we finally make our way to the front of the hotel. We go in the lobby and we know we're in the right place because there are basically two very different kinds of people in the lobby. And and they're at opposite ends of the lobby too. So it's like, okay, kind of, you know, choose your side right here. So we found the group that we were supposed to be with, you know, our, our, our fellow blue state folks who were very, very clearly San Francisco hipsters. Like they're all wearing their, you know, dark wash, skinny jeans. They're like retro footwear, you know, bands or Chuck Taylors or whatever. And, um, and T-shirts, you know, with these really pithy slogans that were silk screened on like about three decades ago. Um, sure you can imagine, you know. So, so this is one group. The other group on the other side of the lobby are, I guess what you would call Reno natives. I'm assuming they weren't tourists because I don't think the hotel was a tourist destination. I couldn't actually see this other group, so I can't actually really describe them very well. But I knew they were there because the hotel actually had a kind of lounge act performing uh, on the other side of the lobby. And I assume, you know. That's who the audience was. Uh, was it a good lounge act? <laughs> no, it was actually, you know, I assume that being the entertainment at this particular Reno hotel, sort of like an entry-level job in the larger Reno entertainment industry, I mean, it was terrible. You know, it was basically one guy singing, and he had a keyboard. So he, he could sing, and he could play the keyboard, but apparently he couldn't do both at the same time. He was just, you know, his one kind of, like, trick seemed to be this awful, awful rendition of You Can Do Magic. And so, you know, he would kind of warble out the the chorus from that song, like, you can do magic, you know, followed by those three chords. And, like, that was about all he could imagine. Like, do, 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 
There was another person. I don't know if she was the audience, like the one audience member, or just part of the act. This woman sort of swaying to the beat, such as it was. She was sort of out in front dancing, and she kind of reminded me of the way that Muppets dance. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else remembers this, but you know, they had the strings right holding their arms. So it was kind of like leading with the elbows, like this very jerky kind of dancing. So you didn't hit up the uh, Reno nightlife. No, I did not. I did. I sort of felt like I saw enough of it trying to get there. And, you know, I'd been to Circus Circus many times as a child. They have sort of the adult casino as well as like the kids casino with the ski ball and whack the groundhog. And like that was actually more tempting. Maybe a little ski ball, but no. So you'd seen enough magic in the lounge. Already. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I wasn't quite convinced I could do magic or anyone else could do magic but yeah yeah I was ready to call it a night so how early did you have to wake up for the training uh so we had to get up we had to be at this park where the training would take place um around eight in the morning I think did you at least get a good night's sleep uh, no and unfortunately <laughs> I didn't it, you know it was one of those nights where um you know you toss and turn and you look at the clock and you hope that it says like one or two, because then at least you could get a few hours, but it says five or six. You're doing the math in your head as it, it happens. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, by the time it's six o'clock, it's like you just know it's all over. And at the time, I was thinking, gosh, maybe I'm just like so excited to go register voters. But I, I actually learned a few weeks later when these horrible red bites appeared all over my legs that I was probably being kept awake by the bed bugs that were attacking me. <laughs> it's a very, I, I hope that you've never been bitten by bed bugs, but it's a very distinctive kind of bite. So, you know, a little like Google imaging and I knew exactly like what I was, what I was beset by. So that's probably why I didn't get a great night's sleep before all of this. Did the training fully prepare you for the ordeal ahead? Yeah, I mean, it definitely tried to. Um, they, you know, they gave us a script that, that we could use to prepare us to talk to uh, the, the Reno locals. And it was kind of, you know, it was some basic sort of issues about Bush and Kerry, but also sort of tailored to specific things that people in Nevada were, were concerned about at the time. So, for example, they had us talking about the... Uh, Yucca, and as I'm saying this, I can't remember where it was Yucca or Yucca Mountain, and I know this was important to our training. Um, but anyway, the the proposal Yucca at the Mountain, time, Yucca Mountain, yeah, okay, the proposal uh, that was in the news at the time to bury nuclear waste under the mountain, which Carrie was opposed to, and we thought, you know, obviously this is something that people in the area are opposed to. Um, so it was something that we were going to bring up. So the script had a guide to a bunch of these issues, and it also had a pronunciation guide for how to say Nevada. Um, it's not Nevada, as Carrie had had said, you know, just before the time I was taking this trip. You know, it's actually Nevada with, you know, that short A, like as flat an intonation as possible. And being a local, being a California girl, like I knew how to say this. But I have to say that it was one of those things that I was sort of feeling like, okay, I have to remember how to say Nevada properly. I just think that in these kind of weird, like sleep deprived circumstances, everything was just feeling very foreign, like very unfamiliar, things that should be easy. I couldn't figure out anything, you know, that was going on. You know, we had this script and we were assigned a partner. And this was actually the person that we'd be heading out into the field with. So I, I was assigned this guy, Matt, who was a firefighter from Santa Cruz. And he'd done this a bunch of times. And and and, and he was a great person to be doing this with because I was, you know, I was really kind of nervous. And, and he was kind of helping me through that. But it was something about the script just felt so stilted. It was, you know, we had this, like, opening we were supposed to do, and it just felt so ridiculous. Like, hi, my name is Melissa. I'm here to talk to you about blah, blah, blah. You know, this kind of robotic thing. And I was just so worried about how to even say hello to these people, which is really kind of, like, 
pretty rudimentary human interaction. But for some reason, you know, it just seemed like one of these things that was just going to be so difficult. I was kind of freaking out about it. Did you run through different ways to say <laughs> hi in your head beforehand? Oh, yeah, of course. Like, should I be really chipper? You know, should I be just more kind of like down to earth? <laughs> you know, I don't even, like, I can think of all these adverbs. I don't even know how, you know, the one syllable of hi would sound like in all of these different moods or, or tones. But yeah. So what kind of people did you meet? The, the other people at the... Um, well, once you actually got out okay. on the street. So, so once I actually got out into the field, I, you know, I, I met some interesting people. Unfortunately, I only met like a small fraction of the people I thought I'd meet uh, just because so many people just kind of didn't answer their doors. Like we, Matt and I were sent out to this pretty quiet suburb. I mean, I guess you can call it a suburb. Reno's it's not really a metropolis, but... Anyway, a smaller town than Reno. And it was just kind of eerily quiet. And I don't know if that's because people weren't home. I assumed it was just because they didn't want to answer their door to me, which actually made sense because I never answer my own door. The, the type of person we were supposed to meet was supposed to be pretty receptive to what we had to say. Like maybe they had never voted or they hadn't voted in a really long time. But if they had ever indicated that they leaned conservative, we were supposed to like not waste our time trying to convert them. So there was a screening process right. beforehand. So there's a screening process beforehand that, that driving votes or maybe one of the related organizations had done. So we basically were just handed a spreadsheet with names and addresses. And I think if they had ever registered in a party before, we saw what that was. So so the first guy that I actually got to talk to, when he opened the door, I just had to sort of go on faith that he was one of these, these pre-screened people. Um, he was, you know, I'd say 40s maybe, mid to late 40s. So this military-style haircut. I mean, his, hair, his hairline was receding, but what was left of it was, was in, this, in this military haircut. Wearing, like, really faded jean shorts, like, down to the knee, and, and one of those really baggy tank tops with the, like, enormous armpit holes that, that go down to your waist. And he just, you know, he opened the door, and he didn't really say anything, but his head just kind of jutted out. And, you know, I was trying to be optimistic. I thought, oh, maybe he just wants to hear what I have to say better. But, you know, I... I I, I think that it was probably just because he was just getting ready like to pounce, depending on what I had to say. So I, I gave him my little spiel, and I tried to start with the Yucca Mountain thing. But I mean, he would have none of it. Like, as soon as I tried to compare Bush at all unfavorably to Kerry, like, he just looked absolutely repulsed. Um, so clearly this was the moment in which I should have just kind of walked away, you know, just headed over to the next door. But I was still kind of green and still kind of optimistic, I guess. So I, so I, you know, remembering my script, I kind of, you know, went on to the next issue, which was stem cell research. And I tried to present it in focusing on the good that it could do, you know, curing diseases, helping people. And this just absolutely, like, was anathema to him. He was absolutely not interested in saying this. And he kind of growled at me. I'm not going to vote for anyone who wants to start sticking babies up some old farts. (laughs) (laughs) I just, like, I will never forget that. Like, this Uh is not phrasing I could ever come up with in my own head ever. And it's just kind of that image and just everything about it is just kind of stuck in my head. <laughs> so how did how did they go from there? From there? Uh, <laughs> so after I excused myself from there, I, I, I believe that the next person I talked to actually didn't go much much more smoothly. Uh, so so the person who answered the next person to answer the door was a Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses apparently don't vote. I I think it has something to do with elected officials being similar to false gods, something like that. I didn't know this at the time. Uh, I did figure this out really, really quickly as soon as the guy opened his door and I kind of opened my mouth and he clearly saw what I was there for. And, you know, what was interesting is that he went 
sort of into into this like proselytizing autopilot. It was like he just couldn't shut it off. And I was the one who couldn't get away, which was so weird. I mean, it was so weird to be on the other side trying to, you know, figure out how I could get away from this person. And I, the script really didn't like tell us how to do this. How, how to respect. run away. Right, exactly. How to run away from, from you know, a missionary you may run across. So I think I basically sort of tried to remember what other people had told to me that day when they were trying to get away. And I said something like, Oh, I, I, you know, I'm sorry, but I have to get back to what I was doing or something. Which like makes that. absolutely no sense exactly. in the context. Yeah, precisely, because I was the one who had sought him out. So, uh-huh. so it was just another one of these absolutely, like, absurd interactions. Now, what was the weather like? This is Reno in the summer, Yeah, right? this is Reno in late August. It was sweltering. It was so, so hot. And I think it was shortly after the Jehovah's Witness encounter that Matt and I decided, like, we just need a break. Like, it was so hot hot. We just needed air conditioning. We needed to get out of the sun. You know, I, of course, had come from San Francisco. Like, I was not properly attired in this. I was in my dark wash jeans, and I was, like, sweating like a pig, basically. So... (laughs) What we decided to do, we'd seen a a 7-Eleven, like when we were driving around throughout the neighborhood. So we actually decided to go and hang out in a 7-Eleven. I can't remember the last time I actually hung out in a 7-Eleven, like this is going to be my my thing for the afternoon. Uh, I remember it was kind of like a big thing to do in 7th or 8th grade. So, So Matt and I go in, and the air conditioning is just it's just bliss. Like, we can't even hear each other over the air conditioning. We're just kind of, like, wandering the aisles in a daze, like, picking up, like, like a Twinkie here, like, a Ding Dong, like, whatever else the 7-Elevens have. And then I get the brilliant idea that we need Slurpees. Like, a Slurpee is just going to be the absolutely, the, the perfect thing for this. So we, you know, we get the enormous cups, and we slap on the plastic dome lid that lets you fill it up, like, higher than the cup actually goes. It just, like, you know, mix all the flavors and stuff, just like you do when you're a kid. And then we we go back in the car, we drive around to eat, and we find our next neighborhood, and we're just, like, sitting in the car, slurping away. So did you have any meaningful conversations in, in this voter drive? Fortunately, I did, yeah. And, of course, you know, it came sort of at the end of the day, and... I mean, it, it, it was pretty soon after, like, I'd got the Slurpee. It was sort of reinforced by the Slurpee. I don't know if it was sort of the magic elixir of this the Slurpee. Sugar rush. Yeah, exactly. The sugar rush or just being able to sort of, like, you know, to sort of lower my body temperature a little bit where I was actually sane again. But, yeah, so this woman answered the door, and it was one of the first people I remember talking to. Like, even the people who were polite, most of them kind of looked like they wanted to get away. Um, but it was one of the first people who didn't who didn't look like she wanted to get away immediately. I could see some kids in the background, like, who I assumed belonged to her. But she kind of was ignoring them a little bit um, and just, you know, kind of focusing on me. And so so we were able to talk, and I was, um, you know, asking her, have you ever voted? Have you ever registered to vote? And she said no. And I asked her why, which was all kind of part of the of the standard thing. And she said it was basically because she didn't feel like she knew enough about the issues. And it was... <laughs> It was then that it really, you know, I really had this kind of epiphanic moment. Like, I really started to figure out why everything had felt kind of so awkward, so stilted up until this point. It really kind of began to occur to me that we were sort of going about this. The driving boats people were going about this the wrong way. I think that we were all under the impression that what we were trying to address was the problem of apathy, of trying to think of enough issues that these that these folks could care about, that they'd want to vote. But I think that what it was was more almost of this sort of 
I think they felt really alienated by the process and maybe a little intimidated by the process. And it, you know, began to occur to me that having someone like me, you know, clearly, you know, not from the area, come in from some other place, tell them what to think would probably only make the situation worse. So, you know, it was that point that we just actually started to have that meaningful conversation that I think I, you know, idealistically I'd wanted to have throughout the day. So we just really started talking about, you know, her life, her, you know, problems that she was having in her life. And her problems were not earth shattering. I mean, she had to work two jobs. She didn't think her kids' schools were very good. She didn't, um, she didn't have enough time to spend with her kids. And as I'm talking to her and what I tried to, to kind of communicate to her was that basically all you need to do to make that informed political decision is to think about, you know, what are the changes I would like to see in my own life? And, you know, how does that kind of relate to things that, that, that politicians are talking about? So I don't really know, you know, what she felt about nuclear waste or stem cell issues. I mean, we really just kind of kept it focused on her own experience. But we did kind of talk about, you know, how, how she could kind of figure out what the candidates had to say about these things and maybe what they were planning on doing or saying they would do would, would impact her life in that way. Melissa Levitt is an instructor for the Program in Writing and Rhetoric at Stanford. Today's program was produced by Jonah Willinghans and myself. It was engineered by Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Gabe Boynet, Kalani Leifer, Alyssa Morales, Wesley Lim, Monica Udine, Jeremy Newman, Omar Sadat, and Melissa Levitt for their stories. Original music on the show was performed by Brad Wolf, Taylor Murchison, and Rigo Sen, all of whose music you can find on Stanford iTunes. You also heard original music by Kissing Johnny. For their generous financial support, We'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford Continuing Studies, the Program in Oral Communication, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember, you can find a podcast of this and every other episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week for our show, Form follows function. How formulas shape your expectations for better or for worse. For the Stanford Storytelling Project at KZSU Stanford, I'm Micah Craddy.